You'll find this morning's passage in Matthew 27, and we're going to be reading verses 27 through 50 this morning. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you allowed yourself to be treated in this way. That you allowed yourself to be mocked and beaten. You allowed yourself to be nailed to the cross, to be crucified, to be killed. That you allowed yourself to be abandoned and forsaken by your Father because of us and our sin. God, we pray that this morning that you would help us in this passage to see more and learn more about who you are and the grace with which you have acted on our behalf. God, we pray that you wouldn't allow us to see this passage as some story that we've heard before that we know well. 
but that instead you would confront us again with the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf and pray that now you would help us to understand it more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we read in our passage today, we're going to see Jesus being mocked and beaten and crucified and ultimately abandoned by the Father uh, and, and killed because of us and our sin. And as we walk through this passage, I don't want us to miss what Matthew is, is trying to show to us, what he's trying to teach us as he retells this story of what happened to Jesus. Because what we're going to see again and again and again is, is Jesus, this, this, this man, this God who is presented throughout Matthew's gospel as the Son of God, as the Redeemer sent in the world to save it, as a king. We're going to see him treated in a way that is not fitting for a king, that doesn't line up with everything else that we've learned about him up to this point. And even though that happens, what we can't miss this morning is that in what these people say about Jesus and how they mock him and how they, you know, revile him and just hurl insult after insult after insult at him is that even in what they say about him in mockery is truth that's spoken about him, that, that tells us more about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So as we move through this, that's what we're going to see. And the main point for us this morning as we are confronted with what Jesus does for us and what people say about him and what he's doing for us is the reality that Jesus is the king who suffers for his people. Jesus is the king because really there's only one king who has ever suffered in this way for his people, and that's Jesus. What we see here is a few different chunks that are broken up by uh, Matthew for us. The first is Jesus being mocked by the soldiers. In verse 27, we find out that after Jesus has been condemned by Pilate, after he's been kind of handed over to the soldiers to be crucified, that he's taken to the governor's headquarters. And this, this entire battalion has been assembled before him. And what we can't miss is, is something that we didn't talk about last week because it's going to help us understand where Jesus is at right now. Uh, in, in 26, last week, we ended with, then Pilate released him, or released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Last week we didn't really talk about what scourging is, but it's important for us to talk about this morning because it, it gives us more information about how uh, the, the state that Jesus is in right now. And what scourging is, is it's this official punishment that the Romans used uh, to condemn criminals. And what they would do is they would take someone and they would tie them to a post. They would tie them to post, and then this, this person, this Roman soldier who was specifically trained for this activity, would take a whip, a leather whip that had uh, woven into it or braided into it pieces of bone and uh, wood and rock and metal kind of woven into the leather. And what that would do when this, this trained soldier would use this instrument is instead of being like a normal whip where it would just, you know, cut someone's flesh as they struck them with it repeatedly, this one would uh, catch and it would pull out not just, you know, blood, but chunks of flesh. 
And typically, people didn't survive this activity. Lots of criminals would die just under scourging. And so Jesus has already endured this. He's already been beaten in such a way that kills most people. And then he's passed on to these soldiers. And Matthew tells us that they gathered the whole battalion before him. If you've got an ESV, there's a footnote there that tells you that a battalion is around 600 soldiers. So for these, these soldiers, this group of soldiers, it wasn't enough for Jesus to be mocked by a few of them. It wasn't enough for him to be ridiculed in front of just a small group of people. They wanted as many people there as possible to see what they're going to do to Jesus, how they're going to treat him, and how he's going to be condemned. So they assemble all the soldiers present. And this is what happens. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. This scarlet robe was probably uh, the, the robe or, you know, kind of tunic or man dress that a Roman soldier would have worn, that, that kind of red garment that they wear underneath their armor. And they took it and they put it on him because they wanted to dress him up like a king. Then it says that they twisted together a crown of thorns. What's happening here is if you, you know, think of pictures you've seen of uh, Julius Caesar, where he's got those kind of branches wrapped around his head. That was how they made crowns in those days for their rulers. So these soldiers do something like that, only instead of using a nice leafy branch, they take a branch that's filled with thorns, and they, they wound them around into a crown and stick it on Jesus' head. And then they take a reed and put it in his right hand. They're, they're giving him his staff, his, his ruling scepter. They're dressing him up in a costume so that he looks like a king, because that's what he's been condemned as. He's been condemned as the one who said he was the king of the Jews. And then they kneel before him, and they mock him, and this is what they say. They say, Hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. So they're mocking him. They're trying to embarrass him. But what's important is that what they say is true. They don't understand that. These soldiers don't get just how much truth they're speaking about Jesus. They don't understand that he is, in fact, the king that's been sent into the world to redeem it. This phrase that they use, king of the Jews, has only been used in Matthew, really in one other place other than the crucifixion. And that's when you know the magi come from the east looking for the one that's been born king of the Jews. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been presented as this person. The king that's been sent in to the world to redeem it. And these guys now call him that in mockery. They say it in ignorance. They say it in disbelief. But what's important for us to recognize is that one day, every single person who walks on the face of the earth will understand the truth of these words. They kneel before him in mockery, but one day every single person who walks on the face of the earth will kneel before Jesus in full recognition that he is the king that God has sent into the world. This is exactly what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says this, God has highly exalted him, that's, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. As God's creation, we may not believe in him. We may mock him. We may you know, say hateful things about him. But what Paul tells us, what Scripture tells us, is that one day all of those wrongs are going to be righted. One day every false word that's been spoken about God is going to be corrected. The choice for us, as we respond to the truth that's presented in Scripture, is do we want to be those who who bow before Jesus in worship and confess him as Lord in worship? Or do we want to be those who, at the end of all things, are forced to do so? Their pride is broken and they are condemned in judgment because they haven't believed what Scripture said about him. Those are the only two choices. Scripture is clear that everyone is going to confess. Every knee is going to bow. The question is how? We should be those that bow in worship and not those who have our legs bent for us by God. Next, the uh, soldiers lead him away to be crucified. And it tells us that as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and he carries the cross for Jesus. Now, throughout Christian history, there's been a whole lot made of this guy. You know, people lift him up and say, look at how wonderful Simon is, that he was willing to carry the cross for Jesus at this point. Uh, to be honest, that's not true. <laughs> this guy had one choice. Carry the cross or get beaten and possibly killed by a Roman soldier. When the Romans told them to do something, they had to do it. That was their only recourse. And so he's not doing this out of humility. He's not doing this out of service to Jesus. He's doing this under compulsion to the Romans. Simon may have been a nice guy, but you know I don't think we should make too much of this. He carries the cross for Jesus because by this time, Jesus has been beaten twice. He's been beaten by the Jewish religious leaders. He's been beaten by the soldiers. He's been scourged. And so he was unable to carry his cross from the governor's headquarters to the place that they're going, which is Golgotha. Matthew tells us that it's the place of the skull. That's what this word means. That's an Aramaic word, which means skull. We don't know why. You know, either the kind of geography, the caves or whatever looked like a skull, kind of like uh, Skeletor's mansion from He-Man, if you're familiar with that. Or it was associated with death and execution, and so it's called the place of the skull. Something interesting I learned this week as I was studying is that the word Calvary, as in Calvary Baptist Church, uh, is actually this, this a similar kind of word. It's taken straight from Latin, and it means skull. I had always thought that Calvary was, you know, this positive thing like redemption or, you know, Jesus and happiness, and that's why churches were named after it, but... Really, if you go to a Calvary Baptist church, you're going to Skull Baptist Church. Which, to me, means their softball team should be better than it is. So they go to this place called the Skull, and once they get there, he tells us that they offered him wine to drink, and it was wine that was mixed with gall. Gall was this bitter herb that was also poisonous at times. And so it's not that they're offering him something to drink here out of compassion. They're giving him something that would have been disgusting. He tastes it and refuses to drink it once he does. And then verse 35 tells us, And when they had crucified him, 
they divided his garments among them by casting lots. This first part of the verse, uh, Matthew, for whatever reason, hides or you know, skips over a whole lot of torment that Jesus would have endured. I think it's because for him, his readers would have known exactly what crucifixion was. They would have understood exactly how horrible of a style of execution it was. There, during this time, historians that talk about it, there's pretty much universal agreement that it's the worst form of execution imaginable. Jesus would have been nailed with spikes through his wrists and his feet, and then hung up in the air from a piece of wood. And most of us, when we think about that, probably assume that he would have died from that. But what happened is, is most people that were hung on a cross that were crucified died from one of two things. They either died from suffocation or shock. Shock because they usually went on for days before they died. Suffocation because as you're suspended by your arms in the air, you eventually get to a point where you can't draw in breath. So the only option you have is to push up with your legs and pull up with your arms, which, as you can understand, would have put all of the pressure of your entire body weight plus the force of movement on the holes in your arms and the holes in your feet. You would have done that just to get a breath, and by the time you got done getting that breath, the pain that you would have exerted to get it probably would have left you needing another one. So most people suffocated. They just got to a point where they couldn't do it anymore, and they would have died from asphyxiation. That's likely what happens to Jesus after everything that he's endured to this point. They crucify him. They steal his clothes. Uh, I, I don't know why they wanted his clothes. Maybe they were going to sell them for money. But they, they cast lots. They, you know, essentially roll dice to see who gets to keep them. Then Matthew tells us that the charge that's placed above Jesus' head. The Romans used crucifixion as a form of execution because they wanted it to be a deterrent to everyone else. And so when they crucified someone, they would put a sign on the cross above their head so that everybody on their way in and out of Jerusalem could see what they were charged with, why they were killed in this way, and then hopefully decide not to live a life of crime because they didn't want to die that way. So for Jesus, his charge says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And again, what we see here is ironic truth. They're writing something that should have been mocking to Jesus, but it was actually true. He is the king of the Jews. But no one that would have seen it would have thought so because he's on the cross. He's dying. He's condemned as a criminal. He's also placed along two, alongside two robbers, and he's going to tell us later in the passage that those people mock him as well. But next, what we see is that he's mocked by really two different groups of people, three different groups of people. He's mocked by these, the, the crowds that are walking to and from Jerusalem, the passers-by. He's mocked by the Jewish religious leaders, and then he's mocked by the criminals. So first come those passing by. Matthew tells us they wagged their heads, I don't know how you wag your head, but guessing they, they did it. Maybe shaking their head. It, I'm assuming that it's some sort of mocking gesture, like in Shakespeare where they bite their thumbs at one another. Doesn't make sense to us, but that's what they did. And this is what they say. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save 
yourself. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save it yourself. This is the charge that he was condemned by the Jewish religious leaders for. Remember, that's what they, they placed on him. That's what his trial with them was all about. And then when it shifted to Pilate, it changed to his kingship because that's something that the Romans would want to condemn him for. But here, they hurl this charge at him again. And in order for us to really understand what's happening here, we should get what's going on when Jesus says this in the first place. Last week, we talked about how Jesus did actually make this claim, right? In the beginning of John, he said that he would destroy the temple and raise it up again in three days. So listen to what John says. He says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? This is the important part. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. So John explains to the people that he's writing to that when Jesus said these words, when he made the claim that he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, he wasn't talking about Herod's temple. He wasn't talking about the physical temple that all the Jews went to to worship. He was talking about his body. This is important because of what these people say about him here. They say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Jesus cannot fulfill the words that he spoke in John 2 and save himself. He can't destroy the temple of his body and also save himself. If he does that, he doesn't die. If he saves himself from the cross, he doesn't rise again. If he saves himself, then he makes himself out to be a liar. Jesus fulfilling the words that he spoke about destroying the temple by dying on the cross. This is important because for the Jews, the temple was the the one place where God's presence was on the earth. But the reason why Jesus speaks the way he does in John 2 is because when he arrives on the scene, in the incarnation, that all changes. God's presence on the earth is no longer and has never been since isolated to the temple in Jerusalem. God's present in the person of Jesus. And so he is fulfilling his words. He's abolishing all that old system of religion with his death on the cross. And he can't do that and save himself. We see a similar thing in the words of the Jewish religious leaders. They say three different things to Jesus. The first thing they say is this. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He saved others. He cannot save himself. What they are probably doing here is acknowledging the miraculous ministry that Jesus had. They couldn't deny that. People from all over Israel, you know, had their sight restored to them, were made to walk, their, their diseases were healed, he cleansed lepers, he cast out demons. They couldn't deny the fact that Jesus had a supernatural ministry. And so that's what they're thinking when they say he saved others but cannot save himself. He's done miracles before, but obviously he can't do one now to get himself out of this situation. But we can't fail to recognize the truth in what they say. 
he saved others, he cannot save himself. Jesus can't save himself because he is saving others. He can't save himself because he saved us. He saved me, he saved you. If Jesus abandons the Father's plan, if he saves himself from the cross, which he could, then all of us are still dead in our sins. There is no salvation without his death on the cross. And so them saying he saved others, he cannot save himself, is true. He saved us by not saving himself. The next thing they say, He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. We've already talked about Jesus as the King of Israel. But if he comes down off the cross, none of that matters. If they were to believe in him after that, their belief would be worthless. Our faith in Christ is meaningless if he doesn't die on the cross. Our faith in Christ is meaningless if he doesn't rise again. And we're going to come to that next in Matthew. Because he's the king of Israel, he doesn't come down off the cross. Then they say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. I don't know if there are any other words in Scripture that have more potential to provoke God's wrath against people than these words right here. I mean, think about what they're saying about both the Father and the Son when they say these words. He trusts in God. Clearly, Jesus does that. Let God deliver him now. They're goading the Father, to intervene. And then they say, if he desires him. They're making the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son the grounds for why they think God should intervene on his behalf. And he said, for he said, I am the Son of God. They're essentially saying, if God cared about you, he would do something to stop this. And I think this shows, it should show us, it should put us face to face with just how much different God is than us. Just how much more holy and perfect he is and we're not. Because I know that if it was my call at this point, the next verse would say something like, and lightning bolts came down and burned them alive. But it doesn't say that. Jesus remains on the cross. He remains committed to the Father's plan, even though these guys are are calling into question and speaking lies about the relationship he has with the Father. Finally, Matthew tells us that even the robbers, even these common criminals that were next to him, mock him as well. So at this point, Jesus has been beaten by the Jewish religious leaders. He's been mocked by the Jewish religious leaders. He's been condemned by them, by Pilate, by the crowds. He's had a murderer released in his stead. 
Then he's scourged almost to the point of death. Then he's mocked by the soldiers. He's beaten again by them. Then he's forced to walk from the city to outside the city to be nailed to a cross. And there he's mocked more by people that are just traveling to and from Jerusalem, by the Jewish religious leaders again, by soldiers again, and by these common criminals. And finally, Matthew tells us about his death. He says, from the sixth hour, that's about noon, there was darkness all over the land until about the ninth hour. That's about 3 p.m. So this is the brightest point of day. It's darkness across the whole land. Don't know whether that's the whole world, whether that's just Israel, whether it was called by, caused by an eclipse or a storm or something else. We don't know. All we know is that it tells us that darkness covered the earth or the land. At that point, 3 p.m. is when Jesus cries out in this loud voice. The Bible tells us what he said in Aramaic, and thankfully it also tells us what he said in English. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First, let's talk about what Matthew tells us the crowd does, and then we'll talk about what's really going on here. He tells us that there's people in the crowd that say, when Jesus says these words, a lie, a lie, and the other stuff, that they get confused. They think he's calling Elijah because Eli, the name for God, was was close to Elijah, the name for Elijah. And so they think, because there were prophecies in the Old Testament about how Elijah would return as the forerunner of the Messiah, they think that that's who he's calling out to. But we know that that's not who he's calling out to. He's calling out to God. So they, they misunderstand him. And then he tells us that someone rushes up to the cross with this sponge with sour wine on it. What they're doing there is they're trying to prolong his life. They recognize in what he cries out and how long he's been there that he is about to die. And so they're trying to give him some water to keep him alive a little longer so they can see what happens. Right? That's what the people say. The others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. They want to know if something crazy is going to happen. They're just there for the show. But what's really going on here is that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. He's quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 conveys both the suffering and then finally the kind of triumph and vindication of the Messiah, of this this anointed servant of God. So when Jesus refers to that, when he quotes that on the cross, he's identifying with that verse, with that psalm. I think what we should understand here is that when Jesus says these words, He's feeling, he's experiencing for the first time ever, not in his life, ever, as long as God has existed. And how long has God existed? It's not a trick question. Forever, right? God has always existed. He's never not existed. And so Jesus has always existed and always existed in perfect relationship with the Father. Until now, until this point on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understands 
what it's like to be abandoned, to be forsaken, to have the father turn his back on his son. And this is important for us because more than anything else that happens on the cross, more than his death, more than the mockings, more than the beatings, more than being falsely accused, this is the greatest cost of our salvation. That this perfect relationship is destroyed by sin, by our sin. God's judgment and wrath against His creation, against us, against our sin, is poured out on the Son. And because of that, the Father can no longer look upon Him in the same way. This is the only way that Jesus could save us. By sacrificing Himself and His relationship with the Father. He bore our judgment He went through the separation from God that we deserve. He allowed himself to be orphaned so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters of God. After this, Jesus cries out in a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. Throughout this whole narrative of Jesus' death on the cross, he is never once pictured as out of control. Even at this last moment, even after all the things that have happened to him, Matthew says he yielded up his spirit. They don't take his life from him, he gives it. And he gives it as a ransom for many, for me and for you. I want to close by sharing this this poem by Elizabeth Browning that talks about what's going on here. And I think she just really, she gets it in a way that most people don't and expresses it in a way that most people can't. She says, Yea, once Emmanuel's orphan cry, his universe has shaken. It went up single, echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amid his lost creation that of the lost, No son should use those words of desolation. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphan cry, his universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless, my God, I am forsaken. What this means is that when Jesus uttered these words, it goes up one time, never again. It went up from the holy's lips amid his lost creation, that of the lost... No son should use those words of desolation. What she's highlighting, what she's bringing out of this story is that Jesus says these words. He undergoes a situation in which he has to say these words so that they would never have to be said again by anyone. Jesus allows himself to be forsaken by God so that we never would. And that, I think, is the greatest grace of our salvation. That we're not just acquitted. We're not just made not guilty. We're not just made righteous. We're also made sons and daughters. We're given a relationship with God through Jesus' broken relationship with him. And so today, as we take the Lord's Supper... 
I think that that should be in the forefront of our minds. That we have this relationship with God. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. I think we should allow the Spirit to convict us and challenge us on how we live like orphans instead of sons before God. How we neglect this gift that we have of relationship with him. And then we would allow the Spirit to lead us into pursuing our relationship with God because of what Jesus endured for it. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we can't possibly comprehend what it cost for you to endure separation from your Father. We can't understand what perfect relationship is like. And so we can't understand what it means for that to be broken. But we pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of the grace that you've shown us. That you would help us to worship you rightly because of what you've done for us. That you would create in us a gratitude that results in us living out the gospel before others. Father, we thank you for the relationship that we have with you because of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that you abandoned him and poured out your wrath on him instead of on us. That because of that, we are adopted as your sons and daughters through no merit of our own. We pray that you would send your Spirit to both bear witness to us that we indeed are your sons and daughters and to help us pursue you in relationship instead of neglecting it. That you would help us realize how great the cost was of our salvation. Jesus, we thank you for all that you sacrificed on our behalf. It's in your name we pray. Amen.